country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your new host, Dr. Jackie Baker, from the Asia Research Centre at Modoc University. As part of the 2005 Helsinki Agreement that the Indonesian government signed with the Free Aceh Movement, or GAM, there was a plan to establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and that would have examined the abuses that occurred during the 30-year conflict. However, the establishment of that commission took well over 10 years. Its establishment in 2016 has been widely credited to the tireless advocacy from Achenese victims and NGOs. Part of the work of that commission is to investigate human rights abuses, leading towards a final report, which is set to be released this year. Historians Jess Melvin from the University of Sydney and Annie Pullman at the University of Queensland have had an inside seat into the research being carried out by the commission. So thanks for joining us, Jess and Annie. Hello, thanks for having us. Hi. So we're talking with you on what should be the eve of the publication of this kind of much-awaited final report, uh, and much-delayed, obviously, final report for the Achenese Truth Mission. But I want to take you back a little bit. Both of you have long histories or research um, expertise in the study of human rights in Indonesia, but how did you come to be initially involved with uh, the Truth Commission and the writing of this report? Well... Originally, it started out just quite casually. We knew quite well because we'd worked before with some of the NGO communities who were also involved with the commission and they invited us along, this is going back probably five years ago now, to initially help with some training for their staff. And from that, uh, Jess then managed to get uh, a small grant from the University of Sydney to support another project which was a collaborative project between the staff at the commission and some researchers from Indonesia and Australia, including us, to kind of take a look from the inside at how the commission was working and how it was collecting its data and what its initial findings were and so forth. So we did that. And then at the start of last year, we were asked if we wouldn't mind helping out with doing the data analysis for the final report. It wasn't just us, there was a whole team of uh, mainly Indonesia-based researchers, but also a handful of international researchers. Obviously, because of our working history with the commission staff, they invited us along. And so, yeah, essentially that's how we got sucked in to helping on the final report. Well, from this kind of intimate position that you've had, what do you understand as the kind of backstory of this commission and some of the challenges it's faced in being established? So as you said, Jackie, back in 2005, there was a peace deal, the Helsinki Memorandum of Understanding between the Republic of Indonesia in Jakarta and GUM. And as you mentioned, there were actually two transitional justice mechanisms built into that peace deal. So one was the TRC, so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And then the other was that actually provisions to set up a human rights court. Now, the human rights court is another matter. We have not seen any movement on setting up a human rights court. And personally, I don't think that we shall, not for a very long time, if ever. The TRC 
as you said, only happened after years and years of lobbying, very persistent lobbying by civil society groups. And so they didn't get round to legislating for it in the Arche Parliament until about 2013 and took a while longer yet to, you know, select some commissioners and actually get the thing started, which wasn't until 2016. And so a couple of things, though. When they finally did set it up, there was this really highly unusual step that they took which was that they made the Arche Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which we know by its Indonesian acronym, which is Kakaer Arche, they set it up as a permanent ongoing commission, which is very unusual in terms of truth commissions around the world. So the first term, so the five-year terms, the first term was 2016 to 2021, and the second five-year term started earlier this year. And each term gets a theme and a new set of commissioners. And so the first term's mandate was to look at human rights abuses committed during the separatist conflict between Gum and Jakarta, so 1976 through to 2005 when the peace deal is signed. In their mandate, they essentially have three areas. The first one is to seek the truth of human rights abuses. The second one is to carry out measures for reconciliation. And the third is to ensure reparations for victims of abuses. And when it finally was established in 2016, it is important to remember that this was actually a major step in Indonesia's overall history of dealing with the past because all other state-based mechanisms of the past two decades, you know, since Reformasi, to investigate, let alone redress, past human rights abuses have failed. All right. The, I mean, we won't go into it too much, but the ad hoc human rights courts that have been set up in the 2000s, they were all a complete disaster. The Komnas Hum investigations, so the ones by the National Commission for Human Rights, there's been quite a few of them and every single one of them gets, you know, tolak, refused by the Attorney General and they end up going nowhere. And frankly, Indonesia's leaders are clearly not interested in dealing with the past at all. In fact, I think all of Indonesia's oligarchy are pretty interested in just sticking with the strategy of we dig a hole and bury the past. Jess, do you want to add anything to that? I mean, how did the local government, the, the former gum politicians in the Achenese parliament, how do they and why did they get on board with this initiative? It's very much been an initiative from civil society in Aceh. So a lot of law students and other people who work with different NGOs in, in Aceh, in particular Contras Aceh and Aldeha. And they were the ones keeping the pressure on this issue. I think as far as the, the central government and the um, conflict gum leaders were concerned, you know, the conflict's finished, we need to move on and let's not dig up the past and air all of those things again. But it has been the ability of these uh, civil society in Aceh to say that uh, this is in fact one of the key aspects of the peace agreement and that is why it needs to be enforced is one of the reasons why it was able to succeed. Initially the argument was that because the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission law failed that that meant that the Aceh one would not be able to be established but there's been a lot of legal thinking really to talk, think about the way that it can be established under canon law in, in Aceh and that's what's eventuated. So you've had this bird eye, bird's eye view of this remarkable data coming in through the Commission's 
efforts. Now that that data is in, how do you see it overall? What were the general patterns that you can observe in the patterns of human rights abuses that occurred over those 30 years? It's been quite shocking, actually, to go through the data in detail. Um, I think anyone who has followed the conflict knows that it was an incredibly brutal conflict. I was fortunate enough to be in Aceh during the last stages of that um, conflict and to see the fear and that sort of the environment that people were living in at that time. But it is shocking to see the extent of human rights abuses that were perpetrated during the conflict and which we're only still only getting the very tip of the iceberg of. And it's very, very clear from the data that the Kakai Air has uh, collected that civilians were overwhelmingly the victims of this violence and that it was the military that was the primary perpetrator of these crimes. And these were crimes that were carried out in the middle of the night in people's houses in the villages. It was very personal. And yeah, it is, it's a good thing that we are now able to begin to uh, quantify this and document it in a way that is irrefutable. How was the data collected for the Commission's report? Who, who gave testimonies and how and in what context? Have the politics of this Commission, as you outlined, shaped the way that that data has been gathered and organised? It's a good question. From um, a very technical perspective, so the way that the Kaka Air is structured is it has a number of working groups, one of which is their data collection group. And it was the the members of this working group who were tasked with travelling around Arche over the time that the commission was in operation, gathering testimonies from people who volunteered to give them. I think they visited around 17 different locations throughout Arche, the main districts, the main towns, and they've collected over 5,000 of these testimonies. Once these recordings were made, and summaries have been made, they've been taken back to Banda Ache, where they've been entered into a database system known as Puridox, which was originally established in Latin America, where it enables you to sort of get a better idea of the patterns in the violence. Now, in terms of how the politics of the Kaka Air have shaped this data, the biggest missing piece is testimonies from perpetrators of this violence. So. The Kaka Air has no subpoena power. It's unable to compel perpetrators to provide testimony or any other evidence to the Commission. So the way that it's worked out uh, in a practical sense is when the Kaka Air has gone into different villages, it's been overwhelmingly civilian victims of this violence that have come forward and had their testimonies taken. So it does affect the overall sort of data that the Commission has. So you talked about this software, Jess, um, that you're using in order to understand patterns in the human rights violations. What has that software told us? It's been able to provide us with a number of graphs and tables, which can show us the percentage of age groups and gender and location of where these abuses occurred. And that's been a really important way of tamping down, I guess, some of the specifics of what occurred in different places. So the Hurodox system that Jess mentioned, it's generally used by NGOs and it's a type of software system 
that you use a common set of codes to allocate information and to pull out information about, you know, victims and perpetrators and locations and types of violations. Now, the Commission collected information about a whole range of human rights violations, more than what will be in the final report, because the Commission decided that it needed to focus on four thematic areas, which reflected, I believe, the four most prevalent forms of violence that they found. And they were killings, so extrajudicial killings, sexual violence, and uh, Jess and I did the main analyses for the torture and enforced disappearances chapters with help, of course, from uh, Indonesian colleagues and people from the data collection and analysis team within the commission. And we can't talk about the specific findings until after the final report is handed over to the government of Aceh, but we can talk generally. Data that was collected across these more than 5,000 testimonies did generally confirm what we already knew about the level of violence that civilians in particular experienced during the conflict. And so, like Jess said, most of the violence was perpetrated by the Indonesian military, but members of GUM also committed violence, as did the various militia groups that were operating in Aceh, in different parts of Aceh at different times. I understand that your contribution to this report were chapters on torture and enforced disappearances. What general findings did you have out of that data? Well, I'll start with the chapter that we wrote about torture. Generally, what we found were when you took the data out of the data set and did some of the mapping, were some real spikes in the frequency of cases during the periods that we all we know from the existing research and the existing reports were periods of intense violence. So as we kind of expected, there was a high rate in the frequency of torture being perpetrated during that DOM period, so the period of military operations, which was 1989 to 1998. And then another spike on of high levels of intensity and torture around the time that martial law is declared again, in which is in 2003. And so the time around that then, there's also quite a high spike in the number of cases that we looked at. And just to dig deeper, who gets tortured and how? Well, uh, in terms of who gets tortured, when we broke it down by age and gender and types of victims, what we see is interestingly quite a bit of stability right so the types of people being tortured uh, doesn't really change over time which was a little bit interesting so i should start when we talk about the age of victims i should make clear that the commission did document quite a few cases of torture against children and children being defined here as those 17 years or younger but in terms of certainly children were tortured at a much lower rate than adult victims and there was some interesting patterns in terms of like very young children were not tortured nearly as often as older children Uh, and so older children are those in there like once they move into the teen years but once they reach their higher teen age groups their experiences aren't that different from that of adults generally but in terms of overall 
who were the majority of those being tortured in terms of adult victims, again, most of them were adults, generally the younger cohorts of adults are the ones who are being tortured more often. When you break that down by gender, however, the picture does change a little bit. Uh, in order to explain that, though, we do need to clarify that most of the data came, particularly for the torture chapter, were about male experiences, because they were mostly from male testimonies or testimonies given by men. And so the sampling was quite biased in favour of men's experiences of this violence. So we do think that there's a lot more to say about the torture experienced by women. And some of that information about how women experience torture is in the chapter about sexual violence, which should come as no surprise, certainly, because uh, women do tend to experience sexualised forms of torture more frequently than male victims. But generally, when we looked at male versus female rates of torture and how, that it, how often they were tortured and so forth, uh, the patterns of violence against women is quite a bit more distributed then what happened to male victims because you have this generally a cluster sitting towards the younger cohorts of male victims than you do see for the, the female victims. But the way that in terms of who were these people who were being tortured, unfortunately, in some ways, there was no one thing that made one type of person more vulnerable than another. And there's also another example that we've been able to find in the data, there was a particular um, site, the Rumangadong, um, which was used as a torture centre and publicly so. So it was a place that people were told about and the things that happened there and threatened, I think, with being sent there. We have quite a bit of data from that. The Rumagadong is basically um, a traditional Archneef house in northern Aceh, uh, which was taken over by Kapasos and used as a torture centre and was in operation throughout the Dom period and mysteriously burnt down at the end of Dom, presumably to destroy the evidence that was at that site. Just a final question on the data you're searching through. In terms of perpetrators, you mentioned that the majority of testimonies seem to identify the military or people who have attributes to the military. But we can obviously break that down even further. And you've talked about, you know, also Corpasus, which is a special operations unit. Uh, you've also mentioned police and you've mentioned sort of ordinary military barracks. Which kind of group within the security apparatus do you think took on the majority of these human rights violations? The various groups that were in control and were, you know, leading what was happening have shifted over time. So um, when the Aceh conflict began in the 70s, but mostly during uh, the Dom period in beginning 1989, Aceh didn't have a regional military command. So unlike during the genocide, when you have the Arche military command coordinating directly what was happening, Arche was being coordinated out of Medan as part of the Bukit Barisan command structure. So rather than having control over the whole of the province, Arche was divided into to two areas. And up on the northern coast, it's known as the Lilawangsa. And that is the area where the conflict was happening during the early stages of the war. And um, it was Kapasus who was leading those operations. We then see a period after the end of DOM, where during reformacy is happening nationally, there's a lot of attention on the military. And you see the, the conflict, which 
is not deemed martial law at this stage, but it's being led by Brimot, the, the police, which was seen as somehow better than military at that time. But of course, the military is working hand in hand with them and often being the ones who are doing the stuff on the ground. But from an official level, we have Brimot being in charge. And then with the establishment of martial law, in Aceh in 2003, we see a traditional full military mobilization and you have the territorial command. You also have the commandos coming in as well and very much led by the military. And so the major part of the peace agreement in 2005 was the expulsion of the non-organic military from the province. And that's where we start to see the beginnings of negotiations for the end of the conflict. So we've talked a lot about you know, the report's general findings. But I always like to turn data inside out. And when you look at a picture of your data, ask a question of, of what's missing. You know, what, what gaps are there? What do those gaps tell us about, you know, what we're researching? Do you have a sense of that? There are a few gaps that have been built into the whole process of the Kakai Air. And they were part of the political negotiation of what enabled it to come into being as well. We need to take that into account. So the Kaka Air doesn't have subpoena powers, so it, there's a clear limitation in what sort of data we're getting. We're not getting statements from perpetrators and we're not getting the sort of documentary evidence that would be incredibly important for understanding the way that the military technically carried out some of these campaigns. So while it has the right to ask for these documents, there's no way of um, backing that up. So we, the Kaka Air really doesn't have access to the the state archives even though technically it it should and we also have the problem baked into the peace agreement that former gum members were provided with amnesties as part of the peace deal in 2005 and that was a way to get the fighting to stop at that time but it means that there is no incentive now for former gum fighters to come and talk about their role in the violence so that is another aspect of this that is very, it's noticeably missing. So from the data we can see, and I think it's correct, correctly reflects that the military is the major perpetrator of the violence, but there is also gun violence. This is a two-way conflict, but there's a lot of reasons why, firstly, well, gum doesn't want to talk about it. Why would they? But gum has a lot of political power in Arche at the moment. They have the ability to create local parties and they are running in partnership with the military to secure you know, seats at the election. So that's another reality that people in Arche are dealing with. We then have the problem that all of these sorts of commissions have you know there's only so much funding and it's very easy for that funding to be stopped or for things to be delayed and to sort of go off track but I'm very surprised happily surprised that the second set of commissioners have been selected and the second phase of the commission is going to happen I don't think that's something that people took for granted up until the end of last year so that's a wonderful thing there is the danger that all of this good work by the Kaka Air is going to be buried so this is something that the Indonesian state does and I think rather deliberately, we can see that, for example, with the work of the Komnas Ham um, investigations, that they've been able to gather a lot of detailed information. They've done sort of similar investigative processes to what the Kaka Air is doing, except once they get the report prepared, it then is rejected. But the side effect of that is that 
it is under wraps. It's classified information. And the real danger at the moment with the Kakai Air is it's said publicly that it's collected these 5,000 reports, but the public needs to see those statements and what comes out of that data. And we need to put pressure on the government in Aceh and in Indonesia nationally for the Kakai Air's final report to be published publicly and in full, and for that to be something that people of Aceh can have as a legacy of the conflict. And that's the responsibility of the government to do that. But we also have the rather thorny issue within Aceh of the rehabilitation process. So we have truth, reconciliation, rehabilitation. The Kaka Air has identified a number of victims and there are recommendations from the Kaka Air that they should be receiving financial restitution for that. So access to healthcare, but also for livelihoods and homes and things that were destroyed during the, um, the conflict. And the Kaka Air has highlighted a, a, a short list of people who are in need of urgent assistance. But the process by which the money is going to be distributed to them is currently in danger. So the way that the Aceh government has set it up is that this money cannot be distributed directly by the Kaka Air. Rather, it has to be distributed through an organisation known as the BERA, the Aceh Rehabilitation Board, which was set up after the tsunami. So the gum fighters were frustrated that they weren't getting any assistance as victims of conflict when the victims of the natural disaster were. So the government set up this body, the BRA, and it was essentially um, a slush fund for the GAM leadership to be able to distribute money through their network. And a lot of that money was used to buy houses for GAM leaders and cars for GAM leaders. That uh, The World Bank was one of the major donators to this group and they reckon there's at least a million dollars that have gone completely missing. No one has any idea where it is. Now, this is the body which has been entrusted by the Aceh government to distribute the money to the victims identified by the Kaka Air. Now that's highly problematic, but it's so politically sticky and difficult that to say, you know, this is not appropriate. Um, and that's something that, you know, we can advocate for that the Kaka Air is the body that should be um, responsible for distributing this sort of money. But yeah, that's gonna be a major challenge into the future. So just you've kind of portrayed a, a sort of dark picture of what the impact of this report might be. Are there any other impacts that we can anticipate for wider Achades politics and society? Is there anything good to cling on to here? Many people wrote off the commission. The fact that it even happened in the first place is an uh, outstanding achievement. The fact that it's been the only state-led mechanism that we've seen in Indonesia to actually get off the ground and actually do some real work in terms of trying to achieve some truth-finding efforts, whether or not it's able to fulfil the other two parts of its mandate around reconciliation and reparations, we'll see. But considering that blanket, impenetrable impunity is the norm in Indonesia and all other attempts at truth-finding, like the Komnath Harm investigations and so on, have gone completely nowhere, the fact that it stood up and it did it is the enduring factor. Now, as just said, there's still a reluctance by the Aceh government, by former GUM, right, by the military, by everybody, to actually get into the details of what happened and who did what, let alone any frank discussions about accountability is very telling, right? 
Instead, you see this very strong emphasis on the reconciliation elements. You see the fairly soft commemorative efforts being foregrounded, the gestures towards victims, okay? None of these things are going to lead, or at least are not going to lead easily into anything that looks like accountability, let alone justice. And so the fight that these civil society organisations have been putting up for all of these years, it's ongoing. So that's, I think, where the Commission will really be uh, remembered for making a valuable contribution. Now read our book. (laughs) Vital is the Archer Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Indonesia's culture of impunity. And it's like taking stock of the work of the Kaka Air as it was in progress. Okay. So it should be a great companion to the report. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. (laughs) All right. Thanks to historians Jess Melvin of Sydney University and Annie Polman of the University of Queensland. If you want to hear a bit more about this work, a book on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and its work in progress will be out next month with ANU Press. Talking Indonesia will return in a fortnight, but you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you.